All right, if you've got a Bible, open it to John 2, John chapter 2. It's going to be where we're going to look in this morning. We are in what was really the beginning of a sermon series we're going to be doing, looking at John's gospel. It's going to take us almost through the entire year of 2021, asking what John's gospel helps us see about who Jesus Christ is, about what he's done, about why it matters, about what Jesus Christ changes in your life. So read with me John 2, starting in verses 13, reading to verse 25. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. To those selling doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So then the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. The temple that he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was still in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He didn't need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Uh, if you were here last week... Uh, or have ever read the story we looked at last week of Jesus turning the water to wine, you're probably thinking right about now, what happened to that Jesus? I mean, the difference between the Jesus we saw last week, Jesus we see this week, is pretty jarring, isn't it? Last week, life of the party. This week, he kills the party. Last week, he seemed fun. This week, he seems puritanical. Last week, he was, he was almost quiet kind of behind the scenes. This week, barges in like he owns the place. Last week, he's making wine, good wine, wine enough for everybody to drink. This week, a whip. Jesus clearing out of the temple here is in John's gospel, the start of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, if, if he were running for president today, this would be his campaign announcement uh, event. And if that's the case, then this hardly seems like the best way to win friends and influence people, right? What is Jesus doing here? What is Jesus saying here? About who he is? About why he's come? And about what that changes for you this morning? I think if we listen to Jesus in this story and we let him answer those questions for us, we'll, we'll actually come to see a gracious person with a gracious offer. 
for you to experience in ways you've never dreamed of before. The presence of God through Jesus Christ, the new, the true temple, the new and true way for God and man to meet. It's three things that we need to see in this passage to help us get there. Out with the old, in with the new, and experience the true. First, out with the old. Out with the old experience of God's presence. Uh, In verse 14, Jesus walks into the temple. And this is what he sees. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves. And others sitting at tables, exchanging money. Now, uh, cattle, sheep, doves, those were all animals that were used to make sacrifices in the temple. However, for your sacrifice to be accepted, it had to be a spotless animal, which if you were traveling any real distance, which most people were to get to the temple at that point, there was a pretty good, ex- uh, pretty good chance that along the way, you know, the little sheep that you were carrying would get some sort of spot on it, and, meaning it was now useless by the time you got to the temple. So to avoid all that, <clears throat> you could uh, just buy an animal to sacrifice when you got there. And the people exchanging money were also there to help people who were traveling from out of town. Uh, when you got to the temple, you had to pay to get in a tax that was in a specific currency, which if you didn't live in Jerusalem, which most people didn't at that point, you didn't have that currency on you, very likely. And so when you got there, you could exchange your money for the right currency, pay the tax, get in, and worship God. Seems harmless, right? What Jesus sees, what Jesus does. Verse 15. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. Gets better. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned all their tables. Now, the cords that Jesus made this whip out of here, uh, it's actually the word there could translate it as rushes. It's um, this kind of long, grassy weed that he braided together and made a, a whip out of. Meaning, um, this whip wasn't hurting people. Uh, Jesus wasn't leaving welts. He wasn't leaving bruises on people. Uh, he wasn't being violent. No, what was scaring them, what was terrifying them, what was making people run out of the temple was his demeanor. Look at he's he's flipping tables. He's throwing money everywhere. He's kicking people out. And so this one, you think, okay, it's Jesus just some kind of loose cannon, Enneagram one, looking to burn the system to the ground. No. No, this wasn't out of control. This wasn't uh, Jesus blowing up. No, Jesus' anger is because he sees something he loves being harmed. The worship of God. And so he turns to the people there in verse 16 and says, get out! Stop turning my father's house into a market! Essentially, what Jesus is saying is this, I I don't really care if people can, I don't care if people can come and, and 
buy animals and exchange money. I, I, I don't have a problem with that, but, but do it somewhere else, not right in the middle of the sanctuary for, you know, for all we're looking at. Set up a shop across the street, sell some $5 donuts with it. It'll be hot. Everybody will want to come. Not right here in the middle of everything. He's saying, you, you've turned the temple into the Grand Bazaar. Right? You've turned this sanctuary into the food court at the Altamont Mall. And there's no way that this can be true worship. No, Jesus says that the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer. Just look at yourselves, guys. He's saying to them, this isn't communion with God. There's no way it could be. I mean, this is what the scene would be like. You'd come in, there'd be people walking all over the place. You know, sounds of animals grunting and snorting and sneezing and everything else that they do. Uh, people all around you, you know, haggling the price of a cow or a dove or something. You finally get yours. You handed the priest. He guts it, sprinkles some blood on the altar. Hocus pocus, off you go. See you next year. The whole point, whole point of the temple was to experience God's presence, was to commune with him personally. And Jesus is saying, you completely missed it. He's saying, when, when you're here at the temple, you're supposed to be focused. When you see that sacrifice being made, you're supposed to be meditating, thinking about what all this means, about God, about yourself, about our world. That's not what's happening no, Jesus is saying, instead, you've turned my father's house into a mechanical, thoughtless, lifeless religion. What about you this morning? Are you on autopilot? Has your faith become lifeless? You say, well, how do I know? Here's a few questions to help you figure that out. Does your faith humble you? A, a lifeless spirituality eventually grows dull to the seriousness, pervasiveness of sin in our own lives. We start to think, God's not that holy, I'm not that bad. Do you have a growing sense of how sinful your heart just really is? Now, are you seeing more and more, not just, not just the sinful things you do, but the, the motivations, the reasons in your heart for why you're doing them? Not so that you can beat yourself up over about it, not to try to belittle you over it, but to soften your spiritual pride and to help you see how much more you need Jesus. Does your faith humble you? Does your faith give you joy? A, a living, organic faith, one that's experiencing the presence of God, should have joy in it. Because you have been knocked sideways by the fact that the God of the universe loves you so much with such intense love that he would give, even give up his own son to die for your sins so that now, because of that, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from God. If that free grace is what defines your life, defines your circumstances, then even in, the, even in the darkest moments of sorrow in your life, there's still a sliver of joy. Does your faith give you joy? Last question. Does your faith make you pray? Prayer 
what the uh, late pastor Ed Clowney called something steeped in the awareness, often awe-filled awareness, the presence of God. Does faith make you pray? Here's the, here's the first indicator on my spiritual dashboard. Uh, when I know I'm sliding into a mechanical, stale, lifeless spirituality, my prayer life uh, becomes routine, aimless, ambitionless, dry, and not really that focused on God's kingdom. Type of prayer that the pastor Jack Miller used to call maintenance prayer. It's not frontline prayer. It's not praying with, with ambition and hope for yourself, for your community, for our world. It's just maintenance. So as you're hearing all this, the, uh, the traditionally religious approach to things would say, okay, I've got it. I hear what you're saying, and I need to focus. I need to buckle down. I need to, I need to get serious about my spiritual life. And Jesus is saying, no. Now, if the solution to a dry, lifeless spiritual life is looking deeper, further within yourself, he's saying, you, you, don't, you don't get it. Just stop and look at what I'm really doing here. What he sees, what Jesus does, what he means. Jesus clearing out the temple here in John 2 reveals things about God's people, reveals things about our own hearts, only in so far as it's ultimately revealing something about Jesus. Ready? Here's the whole point, everything he's doing here. Jesus is acting out a prophecy from the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter 14, where it says that after God's people have been exiled, kicked out of their land as punishment for their sin, God is going to send them a Messiah, a deliverer who is going to come and purify God's temple and prepare God's people for the start of a new era, the era of the Messiah, where they will have a new, greater experience of God's presence than they ever, they ever dreamed possible. One that will not just revive their lifeless worship, but actually will draw in all the nations from all around the world to come and experience God's loving presence. And one of the signs in Zechariah 14 that this is happening is in verse 21. It says, on that day, on the day that the Messiah has come, this new age, this new era is beginning, there will no longer be a merchant in the house of the Lord Almighty. See what's happening? Jesus comes in, flips the tables, kicks out the merchants, as if to say, it's here at last. I'm here. I am the promised Messiah. And that's good news. Because I've come to do what you could never do to transform your experience of God's presence and through it to transform, to renovate your entire spiritual life top to bottom. Out with the old. Out with the old experience of God's presence. Second, then, in with the new. Uh, I'm sure, as you can imagine, this would have caused quite a scene. I mean, just think, think for a second, all right? Easter 
here. Everybody in their Sunday best. Friends and family from out of town who have, you know, come here for the weekend. You got a ham waiting for you when you come home. And halfway through the service, guy walks through the front door, flips over the communion tables, takes the kids' Easter candy, scatters it all across the floor, rolls up bulletin, starts chasing everybody out of here. You'd be thinking, okay, <laughs> he's probably spent either a little bit too much time in an echo chamber somewhere deep on the interwebs reading way too much things, or this person's completely unstable in the head, or he owns the place. It's the third assumption that the people in this passage are half-heartedly working with. In verse 18, they essentially ask Jesus, okay, you walk in here like you own this place, saying it's your father's house. Think you can do whatever you want to do, so prove it. Show us something. Show us some sign. Give us something to authenticate what you're doing here. And this is what Jesus says to them in verse 19. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And so they replied to him, no, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? Okay, maybe this guy is a little crazy here. That's impossible. It's taken practically a lifetime for people in that age to build this temple. And he's going he's to rebuild it back in three days. It'd be like if I told you, see the Amway Center? level it till the ground. I'll have it rebuilt by the end of the week. You'd think I'm a nut, probably partially because if you know me, you know I'm really not that handy with anything around the home. But John says this in verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. See what Jesus is saying here? Own it? I am it. Jesus is not just saying, out with this old era of lifeless worship. He's saying, out with this old temple altogether. Out with the old way that you used to meet with God, experience his presence, and in with the new, with the true temple, which is me. And that was God's plan all along. See, in Genesis 1 and 2, when God created the world, he was actually creating, study it, a worldwide temple. A place where God and man would live in each other's presence, experiencing his love, experiencing his joy. But it wasn't finished in Genesis 1 and 2. No, he, he got it really just started in a little sliver. The Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, met with him in his temple. And the whole plan for Adam and Eve was that they were supposed to expand God's temple, expand his presence across the whole face of the earth so that every living creature was walking with him, experiencing his love, experiencing his joy. But what happened? Adam and Eve sinned, and they're kicked out of Eden. They're exiled from the temple. Humanity lost God's presence. Until a little bit later, God calls a people, Israel, to live in a relationship with them, giving them his presence, first in a cloud, then in a tent, 
finally in a temple. But Israel sins too, so much so that they are eventually exiled, kicked out of their land as punishment for their sin. And when they do, God lets their temple be destroyed, removing from them his presence. Yet in the darkness, in the absence of God's presence, he gives a promise. He says, one day, there is going to be a new final temple, one that will be uh, more glorious than the first, that will draw in the whole world to experience God's loving presence. And so when the people are released from exile and they return back to their land, they get started quickly on building this temple. And when they finally do and it's all done, the people who are looking at it weep because they realize it's not the final temple. We still have to wait. John 1, the Word, God, became flesh and dwelled, tabernacled, templed among us. Jesus Christ comes into the world to be the true presence of God on earth. The one that up until now, you had to experience in a building, you can now come and experience in a body. The one that you used to have to experience in a place, God says, you can now come and meet with me in a person, in my son, the new and true temple. And Jesus says of himself, of this temple here, tear me down, and in three days, I will raise this temple up again. Now, hold on a second. Why? Why is Jesus getting torn down? Why is the temple that is his body going to be destroyed? Well, why did the last temple get destroyed? Because God's people had sinned. Because they had gone into exile and lost his presence. And what Jesus is saying here is that just like that temple was torn down in exile, so too the temple of my body will be torn down when I go into exile. That on the cross, I will be exiled. I will be sent outside the city gate. I will lose all sense of God's presence. I will be leveled to the ground. But not for my sin, for yours. And then three days later, I will resurrect to an indestructible body, an indestructible temple, an indestructible way for you to meet with God that can never be torn down again. The new, true, greater temple that will give you an experience of God's presence through faith in what Jesus Christ in unthinkable love has done for you that is so much greater than you could have ever imagined. I mean, think about this for a second. Just think about these two temples the one that Jesus and these people are standing in right now, and the one that is his body. The old temple was confined. You could only experience God's presence in one tiny little place on the entire face of the earth for most people at that time, at one time of the year. Jesus is universal. 
He has ascended and by faith put his spirit in you, meaning that you are now a part of his temple. And what that means is you can experience God's presence at any time, in anywhere, in any situation that you're facing. The old temple kept God distant. The whole point was to keep him separated from people. That's why there was that giant veil, because his glory would kill you. Jesus brings God near. Through Jesus Christ, you get to enter through the veil into the holy throne room and see God face to face. The old temple was a spectator sport. I mean, you went through all this trouble to get there and then finally just watch somebody else go actually meet with God, the high priest. You just cheered him on, hope it goes well in there. Jesus puts you in the game with him. Jesus says, by faith, I will bring you with me into the direct presence of God. And lastly, the old temple was insufficient. Every time you had to go there, every time you had to go there, you had to make a sacrifice before you could even get through the front door. Anytime you wanted to experience God's presence, you had to make a sacrifice first. Jesus is all-sufficient because he has made the once-for-all sacrifice of himself on the cross, so that now, despite your sin, whatever it is right now, I don't know what it is, you do whatever it is right now, you can still boldly, by faith, enter into God's presence through the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? If God feels distant, removed, confined, or something that you only watch other people experience, Jesus Christ, the new, true, all-surpassing temple, the new, true, all-surpassing way to meet with God is what will revive a lifeless faith because now you see you don't have to be in a special time, place, or season. You don't have to have great faith, be morally superior. You don't have to fight to get God's attention. You could have ignored him your whole life, have sins you're ashamed of, circumstances you can't face, fears, worries, depression, and through faith in Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews tells us, with confidence, enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, out with the old, in with the new. Lastly, experience then the true. So this is what Jesus is saying here in this passage that he's come to do. How do we experience this new, true temple, this new, true way for God and man to meet in Jesus? Well, verses 23 through 25 show us how. John says, now, uh, after this had happened, Jesus was still in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, and many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus, he says, would not trust him, entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Uh, John uses here a subtle wordplay um, that actually the English translations don't quite pick up on very well that contains in it here both a challenge and a promise to experiencing this new true temple in Jesus. First, the challenge. 
Uh, in verse 23, John says people saw the signs, meaning they saw the miracles that Jesus was doing, and they believed in Jesus. And that word believed there comes from the Greek word verb pistuo. Then, in verse 24, though, John says that Jesus wouldn't entrust, same verb, pistuo, himself to them. They entrust themselves to Jesus, he won't entrust himself to them. Why? John says because Jesus knows their hearts, knows their intentions. They had seen the miracles. He'd seen his power. uh, They're impressed with Jesus. Clearly, they recognize there's something very different about this guy. Um, But they didn't entrust all their lives to him. And so because of that, Jesus won't entrust himself to them either. See what John's saying here? You can't miss this. John is saying, for you to experience the new true temple, that is Jesus Christ, he has to be master of the relationship. You see, Jesus sensed these people were attracted to him, but for the wrong reasons. They were attracted because they had seen him do signs, miracles, things that nobody else could ever do, uh, but they hadn't seen what the miracles pointed to. They thought this guy is going to be the ticket for a better life for them, whatever that was. And Jesus is saying here to them, no, I, I will not be your own personal projection of what you think I should be. The only way you can experience me is if I am the master of the relationship. I define the terms. And I, this is an incredibly hard message for modern people like you and me to hear today. Uh, modern Western, if you grew up in America, people like you and me understand ourselves uh, as, as what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls the sovereign self. Essentially what that means is this, I am the sovereign, the master, the ruler of my life. I decide for myself what to believe and not believe. I am the final arbiter on what's right and wrong. My conscience is what reigns supreme. And now in one sense, Christianity is never calling us to have a blind, naive faith. To not think for ourselves, to just uh, accept the received tradition and received wisdom of people around us. No, if you read through the Gospels, all throughout it, Jesus says, no, investigate me. Be skeptical. Ask questions. Poke around. Try this all out. He wants you to understand for yourself how he makes intellectual, cultural, emotional, spiritual sense of your life. But what we have today is this this overly individualistic, sovereign self that says, no, my reason, my emotions, that's what will dictate for me what I will and won't believe. And if that's the case, it will never let you experience the true presence of God. Because here's what it's saying. There is nothing higher in the world, in my life, than me. I am the transcendent one. And if that's the case, then God's not. And any understanding of, you, of God that you have then will be a mere personal projection of what you think God should be like. 
not a true experience of the real personal God of the Bible. And Jesus is saying in these last verses then, if you want to experience God's presence through me, if you want to experience the new true temple, the new true way to experience God, to meet with him, I have to be the master of the relationship. That's the challenge. Here's the promise. If you let him be the master, if you truly entrust yourself to him, he entrusts himself to you. He befriends you. He gives himself to you because he loves you. And he will then allow you to experience the presence of God you were created for, that you can enter into now, not through a place, but through a person. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who desires to be known, that you want to meet with your people, that you want to meet with us. God, thank you for this new, true, all-sufficient way that we have to come into your presence, not through a building, but a body, not through a place, but a person, a person who died for us to make this possible. Spirit, help us to enter into his presence right now. As we respond to his word, through the sacrament he's given us, and through the songs we'll sing. Amen.